Turn, though, to verse 19 of Colossians. Begin to read the scripture passage upon which I hope to comment. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. May, God's, uh, may God bless this reading. Let us pray for this moment. Our Father, we pray that you would open this text to us, show us more wonders, adorning the name and the being of thy beloved Son, thine only begotten, even the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might be a great Lord in our lives and a great love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title is, How Do We Speak of Jesus? And uh, through all, all of these different points uh, that you see enumerated in the bulletin, uh, that is the basic question that we're going to be asking. Because Jesus, because the Lord is, through Paul, is trying to open up a study of the, of the uh, amazing nature of his only begotten Son, even Jesus Christ, in the book of Colossians, the very Christologically rich book. And the question we begin with is, how do we speak of Jesus? What, uh, what names do we call him? In our minds, how do we how do we think about him throughout our week? Now, I hope you're like me. I hope all Christians, to some degree, have a kind of uh, subconscious presence of the Lord in their brain all the time, so that as you go through the the steps of your week, your your brain just keeps making references to the Lord. Oh, that the, the, the Lord, praise be the Lord, He helped me here or there. Uh, you avoid a, you avoid falling into a pothole or something. You say, thank you, Lord, for helping me to avoid that. Uh, you're feeling a little more robust that day than otherwise, and you give thanks to the Lord. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for giving me strength today, helping me to overcome my illness or whatever. So that uh, as the day goes on, you have an ongoing conversation in your mind. Your faith, your faith, in a sense, is omnipresent in your life. And you have a conversation, an ongoing conversation with God. It's not like a, a focused prayer, but it's just lots of thoughts about the Lord throughout the week. As you're doing this, how do you think of Jesus Christ? Well, what do you call him? How do you reference him? That's the question that we begin with. And um, um, we, we may simply make vague references to God all the time in our minds. But I hope that you have a richer approach than that in your brain. And we'll see here as we begin that, that Paul 
um, uh, has such a rich approach in this text. Verse 19 says that for it pleased the Father in him uh, all the fullness should dwell and, uh, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So he begins not even using one of the names of Christ, but one of the pronouns of Christ, him, a, a male pronoun or a masculine pronoun uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. If we look back to the very first verse of Colossians, we'll see how we'll see what the hymn stands for. Pronouns always are in search of a noun, uh, a proper noun, a name uh, to be based upon. So if we look back at Colossians 1.1, it says a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So the very first way Paul names Jesus is by the name Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus is, was his given name by his, his parents. Uh, it's a Greek form of Joshua. So Jesus and Christ is the Greek word for Messiah or anointed one. And so um, in, in the same way that in Hebrew, that word is translated Messiah. Here in Greek, it's translated Christ. So he starts out uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. So the second time he mentions his name, he leaves off the, his given name, Jesus, and he just mentions his title. He is the, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. In the, in the third verse, or the second part of the second verse, he says, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here he speaks of him in his Trinitarian setting, like, like the setting of some diamond ring, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He mentions the Father and the Son. And this time, instead of mentioning Jesus or Christ or Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, he mentions Lord Jesus Christ because he is both Savior and Lord. And so he takes one of the other titles. Christ is one of his titles. Lord is the second title. So in this case, he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, then, he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ again. We give thanks to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So that this time he reverses Jesus Christ to be Christ Jesus. Or for your love of all the, all the saints. We get down to verse said the end of verse seven. He speaks of Epiphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ, uh, 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 your behalf, um, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So that mentions the third person of the Trinity, and this time he just uses the name Christ and not Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ. Then from verse nine. Through, um, through verse 12, he just uses, well, he uses the pronouns his, and then he also uses the title Lord, um, and uh, speaks of the Father at the end of verse 12. Verse 13, he speaks of the kingdom of his Son. He's spoken of the Father, so then he speaks of the kingdom of his Son, of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So he speaks of the forgiveness of sins. He speaks of the blood, but he doesn't use the name Jesus Christ. 
We know, we know who he, to whom he is referring. He's referring to Jesus. But he simply uses these titles of sonship and, um, and the work that he does, the, the, the blood uh, that he uh, 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 spilt for us. And then in verse 15, he just speaks of the Son descriptively. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So these are all titles or descriptive terms for Jesus, for the Christ. And then the, the pronouns again, in him or by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, which is the beginning, which is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. So there's another title, firstborn from the dead, that in, that in all things he may have preeminence. So one of the great themes of Colossians is the preeminence of Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. He's speaking of that in this first chapter before we get to the verses we're looking at today. And he, he's referring to Jesus in so many different ways. This just shows us, if we, if we ask ourselves the question, how do I think of Jesus throughout the week? What do I refer, how do I refer to him? See, the best way to figure those answers out, to, or figure the answers to those questions out, is to look at the Bible itself and see, well, how does God speak of his son? How does this come through the mind of Paul? And what we see here is that it's a very, there is not this uh, repeated, rote repetition of simply the name Jesus. I remember um, there was one girl that, uh, uh, Susan and I encountered in college. She was went to Gordon College, and um, every other word out of her mouth was "God is good." You know, she she'd say, you know, that you should hear the bells on the ice cream truck coming down the road, and she'd say, "Oh, I hear that truck. God is good." She just uh, every other sentence, every other was the same phrase: "God is good. God is good. God is good." Now, it impressed upon me that she thought God was good. I rejoiced over that, but it's not the way God speaks of himself. And I think it's helpful to see that God uses a lot of different names, even for himself uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. He uses a lot of different names, but they all, they're all meaningful, they're all pertinent, they're all telling, they're all revelatory, and that adds to the excitement. God himself is brilliant. And he's exciting in and of his being. And so why should the vocabulary about him not be of the same stripe? And we see this in, as, uh, as Paul begins. So he's, he wants us, he's talking, he's teaching us about Jesus Christ. One of the first things he teaches us of, uh, regarding uh, his many titles, uh, these many names, that all make references uh, to different aspects of his life. Jesus is extremely interesting. He is the Lord of all. He is the head of the church. He is our earthly Lord. He is the viceroy or the, the Pope, if you will, between God and mankind. There is no need for a Pope or some other intermediary. Jesus is the intermediary. 
And when his people, he was supposed to be the intermediary for the nation of Israel. He was supposed to be the king of Israel, God says in the Old Testament. And when his people wandered from that and sought to anoint another, an earthly king, a human king, like the other nations, God was fraught with wrath over them because they would not accept the way he spoke of his son. So that's the first big lesson that we have here. And um, the, I'll just make one further note on verse 19. Um, it says, For it pleased the Father in him all the fullness shall, should dwell. Now we know that Jesus was a real, physical human being. And so what this teaches us is that the physicality of Jesus' body did not destroy the idea of the fullness of God dwelling in him. Now that's an amazing thing. Paul says, uh, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Imagine that. All the fullness of the deity should dwell in Jesus. You'd think that that phenomenon being placed in the human body, you'd think that the human body would erase or be incompatible with the fullness of the deity. But th this is what Paul, he makes these little asides and little, little uh, assertions here and there in the text, and they're just amazing. They blow you away. The fullness of Jesus Christ pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. Is it any wonder that the Lord did not leave us any statue of Jesus that we might idolize or that we might find fantastic in its appearance? We know the second commandment commands us not to try to portray the Lord. In Jesus Christ, all the fullness was found. And what he wants us to know, statuary was very uh, uh, significant in the century that Jesus lived. The Romans, the Greeks had made statues for a couple of centuries. You think of the most normal thing. That the, if that was popular in that day, why didn't any of the Christians think, We've got to make a statue of Jesus so that future generations will have a better understanding of who he is. Well, they didn't do that because of texts like this. They understood that in him, in that body, all the fullness of God was to be found. And that made Jesus so special, but also so unique. And it, it gave them something to think about, something to meditate upon. That in this son, in this beloved son, there was a, a an amazing mystery. Now this leads us to chapter to verse twenty, where it says, "And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross." So we've just been told that the fullness of the deity dwells in Jesus bodily. And now he tells us that through this same simple, through this body, the same kind of husk that we all have, that we all wear, that by that, by him, that is by the same Jesus, both the things on earth and the things in heaven, everything 
that he had made peace through the blood of his cross um, uh, by himself. What an astounding job did the father give the son to do? How could he do this? How, how did he do this? He refers to the, uh, the blood at the end of that verse through, through the blood of his cross. So we know that Jesus was a human being. He was fully, fully man even though he was also fully God. And so he went through this uh, job of becoming incarnate, growing as a child from a baby into an adult, then growing from an adult into a young man and then into a fully adult man. He goes through all of this and then he's crucified at the end of his life and he... He gives up his life, which is symbolized in the blood. And he, there's actually blood. He's, it's not a, a gory death in the sense that his blood was all spilled on the ground. It was a gory death in that it was a cross, but there was blood from the sword of the... Um, uh, the, the he was pierced, blood from the, the thorns. Uh, and uh, we know that, that he lost his life in that crucifixion. But God is saying through this verse that, that by this death, that um, there was a reconciliation that went on. And not just a reconciliation of the, of the saints, but a reconciliation of, of all things, all things that were created. Uh, this is putting so much on the back of our Lord Jesus Christ, but this is what he did. So today we have the, the notion or the false understanding that the crucifixion is mostly for people, uh, the elect, or for people in the church and things like that. And it certainly is. <laughs> the, the, in terms of our lives, the most beautiful dimension of the redemption, which is wrought by Christ, is that he saved us. And he makes a way for us to be reconciled with God. But what this verse says is that it's far greater than that. We're part of the process. You see, the Lord created the earth. Genesis 1, 1. And the whole earth was seduced into a rebellion against the Lord. And God brought down a curse upon the earth so that now thorns and thistles would grow where once everything was in order. There was nothing that was outside its bounds. Everything worked according to his original uh, intent. But the earth got disturbed. There were no hurricanes before the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. There were no earthquakes. There were no typhoons, no storms, no tornadoes, no nothing like that. Because God's order, God's dominion was over the earth. And he looked at it. And Genesis says, everything he, as he looked at it, everything was good. But in Adam's fall, not only did we sin all, but the creation itself was wrought, erect. And uh, the, the whole creation, Romans says, groans under the weight of uh, its alienation from God. The flowers, the trees, they are all uniquely ready to be in relationship to God and live according to their original appointed order. But now there are beetles that eat them and things like that. The things are, 
are um, there, there are winds that blow that, that ruin things and wreck things and um, tornadoes that will knock down crops and these kinds of things. And so it says by him that, that Jesus was appointed to reconcile all these things by him, whether on earth or in heaven. Remember, Satan uh, was an angel, a heavenly angel, as he rebelled against God. So there was a tumult in heaven as well as on earth. And uh, But Christ was destined. He was, uh, he, we, uh, we, we, if, if he were not the divine God too, we could say he was designed for this. But his design was from everlasting to everlasting. There was no beginning or end to the Son. But in his essential nature, he was designed to reconcile all the world, all heavens and earth, to himself so that it would come in coordination with the living God. And then in verse 21, Paul turns to the church and he says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So he's reconciled all things, all the world, but he's also reconciled all men, uh, all the elect to the Lord, by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a, it's a tremendous and a wonderful work. It's an, it's an immense work that he gives us. Um, now, I like what verse 121 says because it reminds us, it says, And you, that is, believers in the church of Colossae, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind, people just don't think of themselves as um, alienated from God. And they certainly don't think of themselves as being mental enemies of the Lord. But that's the problem. Uh, the world denies this. The world thinks everything's kind of neutral. Uh, yeah, people have issues here and issues there, but there's no systemic nature to their uh, re uh, rebellion. This is, no, the, 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 all the people that were then sitting and listening to the sermon at Col Colossia, that was, when Paul sent this letter to the church there, Colossae, he, he says, you are alienated to the Lord and you were enemies in your mind. We've made a great deal of emphasis so far in this that this letter to Colossae re re reminds us that the church was growing in a pagan area of the world. We've talked about the pagan nature of our civilization today, the pagan nature of our culture. We've talked about how difficult it is to talk about Christ and to win people to Christ in this day. And we've said it's the same as it was then. This is paganism that has, was changed. The Colossian church became the Colossian church because God's power, God's spirit worked powerfully and brought people into the church. And how did he do this? Well, he changed uh, he changed their minds. They had been enemies of God. And, and just as Paul, the apostle, was an enemy, as mentally he thought Jesus was the devil. And he did everything he could to persecute that devil. And then all of a sudden, one day, the Spirit of God changed his mind. He got a totally new outlook. He thought about God differently. He thought about Jesus Definitely he thought about Jesus differently. And this mental change, this mental conversion, then led to 
uh, the good works that that uh, that the church worked out and uh, and acted on after conversion. In the case when they were enemies in their mind with God, they also had wicked works. Yet now he is reconciled. How did he reconcile that? Well, in verse 22 it says, In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you a holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. So there's this contrast between the body of flesh and then the spiritual qualities of being holy and blameless. How did that work? Well, Jesus, by his life, by his life of virtue, by his good works, by his spirituality, he accrues this powerful record of righteousness which he offers unto us. If we would believe on him, then we would be righteous. We would be clothed with his righteousness um, despite our lack of righteousness, despite our lack of doing things right like that. But then there's all of our record of our sin. What would be done with that? And so very often the Bible speaks of the death of Christ on the cross. It speaks of the cross as the final part of our reconciliation to God because it solves the puzzle of all of the negatives in our lives. It solves, it takes care of all of our hatred against God, the record of hatred against the Lord, all of our attitudes about the Lord, all of our passivity to his goodness and his brilliance, all of our lack of love uh, to the Lord. It takes care of all of that. All of that is worthy of death. And so Christ needed to be slain for that if, if we were to live. There, there's no way that we could simply take his record of righteousness upon us because our record of sin would have pulled us back. It was worthy of death, not life. The, the righteousness of Christ is worthy of life, but our record is worthy of death. And so it says here that you were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh. His body needed to be racked with pain and death that we would be able to live in the strength of his righteousness. And so verse 22 says, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Holy and blameless and above reproach. Now Paul and the apostles went throughout this area, the other Christians, and they were telling people, it's possible for you to not just slip by the heavenly judgment they, many people, many non-Christian non sects believe in some kind of judgment or some kind of uh, comeuppance or evaluation at the end of life. They have high hopes, but it's based on nothing, ambiguity. But people in that day, Christians were saying to people, you have the possibility of being holy and blameless and acceptable to God based on what our Lord Jesus Christ has done. And these pagan peoples who had no clear ideas of these things, they were confused just like people today are, but they, they, the Lord and his Holy Spirit began to work in their brains. And their brains became more and more arrested with the idea that they could actually be upstanding, wonderfully loved people in the sight of God because of what Christ had done. And plus that, he had died for them and he took away 
all the sins of their lives. So they had an absence, they would have an absence of the negative and the presence of the positive. And as they spoke of these things to their neighbors, these, these pagan peoples, these simple peoples, the Holy Spirit began to give that significance in their minds and it began to arrest them in their shoes, in their, in their pathways, in their homes, in their, in their families. It began to arrest them and take control over them so that they, began, they, they, they got baptized and they joined the Christian church. They decided that they would identify with this Christian church to which Paul was now writing. And so Paul continues, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to you, to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he ties in their present tense life of faith in with himself, but he says they have to, they have to uh, continue, if he says, hypothetically, if you continue in the faith. Now, this mention of faith here, this is not a subjective faith. Paul is not saying, if you just continue to believe, if you, if you, if you have this feeling within you, and you earnestly cast yourself on Christ, uh, that's not the faith he's talking about here. He uses the article before the word, the faith. And so this, this faith is not subjective faith, but this is what we call objective faith. What is objective faith? Objective faith are, are those central core key doctrines that define who Christ is and what we must believe about him. Of the kind of which Jesus is now writing this letter, Colossians. So if they continue in the doctrines of which Paul is speaking about here, uh, then their subject of faith receives a warrant and uh, uh, an applause and, and, a, and a, uh, a warrant that that is genuine faith. And so... It's not enough to have vague feelings in our hearts about God. Those vague feelings have to be defined in terms of Orthodox Christianity. Now this, this idea here is the beginning of what we call faith, confessions, creeds, writing down what we believe, defining who Jesus is. So this is not, Paul doesn't just say here, indeed if you continue in faith, no, he says, if you continue in the faith. What is the faith? The faith are those doctrines which define Christ and define Christianity. Paul, as he talks about who Jesus is here and what he has done, he's telling you, he's giving you the definition of what the faith is. The faith is believing that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. The faith is believing that he came to earth. The faith is believing that, he, that the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. The faith involves the fact that he both lived for us and died for us. That's the faith. So Christianity, in its essence, well, in one part of its essence, is it is the simple subject of faith. Because we can't just cling to the outward doctrines without the inward faith. But we can't have the inward faith without the outward doctrines. The two work together. They coexist closely together. The one does not thrive without the other. Today, Christianity is almost totally 
subjective. People know nothing or very little about the faith. Or it'll be the faith of some preacher here and there. Won't be the faith of the church. The faith is more than what Pastor Canono believes. The faith is what all the people in Presbytery believe, all the people in Synod, all the people in our denomination, all the people in Evangelical Christianity, all the people in Reform, Reformational Christianity. That's the faith. And so Paul links that to the job, his job, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So how do we speak of Jesus? How do we think of Jesus? All of these words, all of his names, all of these titles, they're all significant. They all speak of the faith. They all speak of the definition that Jesus has given him. He, just, he doesn't just come as a charismatic preacher. He comes as the foundation of our faith. And he delights when we see him that way and hold on to him in that way. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might be brothers and sisters of these Colossians. We pray that Paul might be our preacher too, our missionary, our apostle. Bless us, O oh God. Give us a, a concern and a concerted effort to know what the faith is, to see how it's connected to this living, breathing even now living and ascended on high, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, the only begotten of the Father. Oh God, bless us through this one, this special one, this Messiah, this Christ, even the one who came into the world and was named Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.